Hello, hola a todo el mundo. This is Pedro de la Rosa and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone and welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Now the world is feeling like an unusual and worrying place for many of us at the minute. But we're here to give you your Formula One fix, even if the start of the 2020 season has been put on hold due to the coronavirus crisis. And if it's an hour of escapism you're looking for, we have the perfect guest to bring a smile to your face. He's a driver who I've known for many years, and I've always loved his company. He made his Formula One debut with Arrows in 1999, scoring a world championship point in his first race. And he went on to carve out a Grand Prix career of more than 100 races, driving for the likes of Jaguar, Sauber, and of course McLaren, for whom he claimed a podium at the 2006 Hungarian Grand Prix. But as well as being a very good race driver, this guy was renowned for being a brilliant test driver as well. He used to pound around the test tracks of Europe, mainly for McLaren and Ferrari, and he worked very closely with Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso. I'm talking, of course, about the Spanish maestro, Pedro de la Rosa. A more articulate and informative voice on Formula One would be hard to find. Pedro drove for two of the sport's biggest teams, well, three if you include his time at Jaguar, which went on to become Red Bull Racing, and he has a sense of perspective that few people ever achieve. We caught up in his home city of Barcelona, back in those heady days when international travel was still possible, and it turned out to be one of our most enlightening podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy it. Pedro, welcome to the show. I feel like I've known you a long time and it's it's just great to be sat opposite you um, here in Barcelona testing and just reflecting on things. Your birthday was recent as well, wasn't it? You don't look a day older than 21. Yeah, there's so many people say that, especially the Formula One teams that still have a desire to hiring me, but I just say, no, I'm too old. <laughs> I'm 49. I've been, uh, I've been here for a long time, but uh, it's just uh, coming today here to the track, for example, uh, and uh, listening to the cars go through the, 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 the main street. I just think that I'm going to test. You know, uh, time goes by, but you actually still think like a racing driver. Even now? Yeah. No, it's, it still it's just, gets your heart beat up yes. a notch or two, does it? That's I mean, what I like about uh, Formula One or testing or racing is not actually going to the races or uh, coming to the test by itself. I just like to go to the to the corners and watch the cars go by because I've, I see so many things. I understand so many things when I see a car close by and also I enjoy it. While if I come here only to say hi to the friends and uh, see the teams, everyone has a, a job, everyone is in a rush. I just don't like it at all. I just feel very frustrated to come to a racetrack if I don't have a job to do. Now, Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, Daniel Kafiat, Carlos Sainz, Kevin Magnussen. What do you have in common with these current Formula One drivers? Uh, nothing, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I just, uh, I just have a huge amount of respect for them. But <laughs> apart from that, I mean, no, I don't, I don't see any alignment all, with myself. All of you scored points on your Formula One debut. Yeah, but then again, you could actually go into. I scored when there were top six finishing, and <laughs> so I have. It nothing. was harder yeah, in your yes. day, wasn't it? I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing in common with them. You see, now look, that was the Australian Grand Prix back in 1999 
that seems, I mean, that's an amazing feat. In and arrows to come sixth. What are your memories of that day? Well, I remember every detail of that day, you know, I mean, like all the races, I actually been involved somehow. And I just remember that one in particular, because it was my first ever Formula One Grand Prix, my debut. I remember arriving to Australia. I remember flying in business, which actually it was one of my first ever business flights because I used to travel to Japan a lot. Because I was racing there before Formula One, but I always I didn't have even enough money to buy, buy buy a business ticket, so I always flew in economy. So it was my first business flight. I also paid for my wife now, my my girlfriend back then, to fly with me. And I remember arriving to the Crown, Crown Towers, the hotel in in Melbourne, and actually it was midnight. We were coming into the hotel, and as I was coming in, Michael Schumacher opened the door and said, uh, please come in, you know, and that was shocking. It was a beautiful entry into Formula One and uh, with great memories. You made it. Yes, I think that... The, That's the, kind the, of how you feel, is it? The, the people have to understand that getting into Formula One is, is like a miracle for anyone, and especially for a Spaniard back then. To get into Formula One, it was like, uh, wow, this is a dream come true alone just by being in Formula One, you know? So I, I, I won in every category I raced in. That's the part of my, my career which I f feel most proud of. But actually, once you get into Formula One, you think, okay, this is the second stage. I've made it. Now let's see how, how many years I survive and eventually if I can win here. So, but anyway, just being in Formula One for a Spaniard uh, that started very late in, in racing was uh, already an achievement. You were 28 when you made your debut. What is, what is your attitude when you see all these teenagers coming in now? I, I'm of the opinion that all the new generations in any sport are better than the old ones. So I know this sounds quite crude or uh, uh, surprising, but it's true because all the new sportsmen uh, start from an earlier age. And I think this is critical. And they are always confronted at an early age against better drivers than the the, 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 the average I was facing in that in that time. So uh, new generations will always be stronger, will be more complete. But on the other hand, they will also end up their careers earlier. So I don't think that the new generations that come in with 18 years old into Formula One will be 40 and still racing in Formula One. I think that the, when they are 30, 30, 35, they will they will finish their... Why? Because they'll get burnt out? Yes, they will be burnt out because uh, that's how it is. You know, I mean, if you look back, I don't think that the, the like Michael, for example, when he retired on the first time, he was actually, he, he was not, uh, he was peaking. I think he was driving at, at his best back then. But it was just actually that he was possibly too tired of this type of life, never being at home, never never being able to, plan anything with your family, your kids start growing, they demand more of your time. So I think that that's part of the, of the game. And these new drivers that come in, they're stronger, as I've said, I think they're more competitive, but they will end up their careers earlier as well. This is what we don't know that will come, but it will come. It's mad to think that you only started karting at 17, the age at which Max Verstappen made his Formula One debut. It's, uh, it's incredible. I mean, I, I just always, when I saw uh, Max coming into Formula One, and I was thinking, wow, I remember back then how unmature I was, how 
slow I was compared to him because I was just learning every day. I jumped into the car. So it's incredible. I was a bit of a late starter. So I'm not a, you know, a good comparison to, to Max. Was there racing in your family or, or where did the bug, if that's what we call it, where did it come from? The, the, there's always has to be a bug in this type of, of sport. And uh, in, my, in my family, my father was the bug. He loved motor racing. He loved cars. He, he loved to repair cars and prepare cars more than driving them. And that's where I, I was always, all the weekends I was with my father, he was repairing cars. I just always remember my father underneath a car, fixing it. And uh, he just taught me everything, how to do it, how to drive. And uh, But it's quite a big step from being in the garage with your dad to saying, I want to be a racing driver, dad. Oh, yes. And it's not that simple either, you know, in my case. I mean, because my father, I mean, my father didn't want me to get involved in racing. He had a passion. I inherited that passion somehow, uh, looking at his as an example. Uh, and then once I wanted to go racing, because I didn't want, to, I, I've never been good with my hands repairing cars or, you know, I mean, it's not my, my, <laughs> my strongest <laughs> uh, skill. So I, uh, he said, forget it. You, you will not race because he was afraid of anything happening to me. Uh, his his uh, brother had died in a road car accident. So that's why I'm named Pedro, actually, because his brother died and was named Pedro. And then he, he named me on his behalf or on his honor. And, uh, and then I, I thought, Oof, that's, that's the end. You know, I won't be able to go racing. So that's why I started in radio control cars. You know, the people always ask me, why, why did you start in radio control cars? I had nowhere to choose. And, and we're very successful racing radio control cars as well. And there's another man who was very good at it as well, was Lewis Hamilton. I mean, did you, it sounds a ridiculous question, but did you learn things like racecraft with a remote control car? Is that ridiculous? It is ridiculous, <laughs> okay, but actually, right. I mean, let, let's, be, let's be realistic. I mean, the best thing is to <laughs> learn from like? karting, you know, no, don't yeah. get me wrong. I didn't do radio control cars because I chose to do that. It was just, uh, it was my only, the only way of getting around the problem. <laughs> so, uh, but actually it teaches you so many things. It teaches you how to set up a car. Uh, with dampers, with roll bars, with ride heights, with uh, tires. You know, it's just so complex. It's, uh, and, and, and you learn how to be precise. Okay, and so it did help. Massively. So you weren't karting, but you were, it was all background knowledge that would help you yes. in future years. Okay. Now, can we just talk a little bit more about Lewis? Because um, you worked with him when you were at McLaren, seven years at McLaren. What were your impressions of Lewis Hamilton? Ah, oh, Luis, my God, I mean, he's, obviously, I developed a huge amount of respect about him, uh, but actually he was, when I was racing, I knew that he was my biggest danger in the sense that I knew that I was going sooner or later to lose my race drive to him because it was a matter of time. He was actually extremely talented. Honestly, I didn't know he was that talented. I know, I knew that he was fast. But who is not fast that, uh, you know, that any driver that is approaching Formula One has won several championships in the, you know, in categories, you know that they are all good. But actually, when I, I met Luis, I thought, yeah, another youngster coming here, pushing hard. And then uh, I knew Ron was just uh, obviously very, 
backing him up for a long time. He wanted him to get into his team. But I, I said to myself, well, let's let's try to be competitive ourselves. Let's not forget that we can still do it and then uh, see how Luis uh, gets up in in, in GP2 and, uh, and in the future. This, this is 2006. Yes. And you have taken over the race drive alongside Kimi Raikkonen when Juan Pablo Montoya moves to America. You've finished on the podium in Hungary. And did you fancy your chances of staying as a race driver at McLaren in 2.7 at that point? Look, I, I'll be honest. I mean, the, the problem we had that year is that Montoya leaves. So, uh, you know, I'm the obvious choice because I am the test driver. I had already done a good job the pre previous year replacing Montoya, Juan Pablo, in, 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 in Bahrain. Oh, quick question, quick question. Did he really injure his shoulder? Was it on the tennis court? <laughs> Is that what he claimed? Man, I tell you. <laughs> what was the real story? I, 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 the, the real story was that everyone was uh, saying uh, he, he broke his shoulder with riding a bike or whatever, but actually no one had any evidence of that. And he always promised to me it was playing tennis. The, the, the thing is that the funny story is that when, uh, when this, this accident happened, whatever it was, uh, he, uh, Ron called me. And he said, are you prepared? And I said, about what, Ron? And he said, because you might have to replace Juan Pablo for Bahrain. And I said, yeah, of course, that's my job to be prepared, you know? And, and I said, why? And Ron said, because uh, Juan Pablo has a slight injury on his shoulder playing tennis. So I, I, I said, okay, Ron, don't worry, I'm ready, blah, 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 you know? I mean, obviously I was thinking, well, I, I, I'm ready, I hope that I hope that it's true that he's injured because it's an opportunity for me. And I hope that Alex Booth doesn't get the, the drive either because he was the reserve driver nominated, but he was too, too, too tall for that car. So, so immediately I called Juan Pablo and I said, Juan Pablo, uh, obviously we, we had a good relationship. He speaks Spanish. I mean, we speak, he said, how are you, man? I mean, Ron just called me saying that you might have a slight injury. And he said, no, Pedro, it's not a slight injury. I'm fucked. <laughs> so, so when he said that, I said, "Okay, uh, have, a good, ha, have a good recovery." And I just slammed the, the phone, and I was and got in the gym. <laughs> no, and I was like, I was nervous. I was really nervous. Just oh, the, the opportunity I have been waiting all my life is suddenly there, you know, by a phone call. You know, two phone calls actually. So that was how I I, I got into the Bahrain. But I, but. It was not until Wednesday when I got the confirmation from McLaren that Juan Pablo was not fit to race the Wednesday before the race. And I knew from one week ago that Juan Pablo, there was no way on earth that he could even walk. You know? <laughs> but were you in Bahrain? On, on, I, I, was, I was flying to Bahrain as a reserve driver. Right. And I remember uh, flying from, from Europe to, to Dubai, uh, arriving there. And when I was changing plane, uh, uh, Martin Whitmarsh called me to say, you will drive uh, instead of Juan Pablo. And I, I, I sounded like, oh, really? That's really good news. And I already knew everything <laughs> because I had all the information. <laughs> I had the information Juan funny? Pablo couldn't. Isn't it funny how these teams operate? Well, it was the, the, the official channels because also they had the contractual issue with Alex. I think that he had to be the one, but Alex could not fit in the car. So uh, I was the last one to know. But actually, because of my relationship with Alex and with Juan Pablo, I knew from a long time ago that I was so at the least man. you could prepare and yes. you knew what was going to happen. And actually, just let's talk about that race then, Bahrain 2005, because I think you got fastest lap and finished fifth. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Um, amazing race. You were the story of the race, if I remember, just, you know, charging through the field. Where did you qualify? 
I, I qualified, I guess I was eighth or ninth. But I qualified in, in front of Kimi. Don't forget that it was the qualifying system where the, you know you qualified on Saturday. Uh, I, I, I had no points. I had not finished the race before because it was my first race. So I had, I had to open the track. I was the, the first guy out with a green track in Bahrain. That That's penalized dusty. me massively. Then on sa- Sunday, I qualified much better because I had, I had a cleaner track or a green, uh, you know, more rubber in. And, and that was that, you know, I qualified well, given the conditions, and then I raced uh, fast, but not consistently in a way, because I many times break too late, I flat spotted the tire, I still have the, the fastest lap, you know, the, 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 the lap record, you know, I still, I still own <laughs> still that still lap record. Now? I yeah. mean, obviously, it's within a few, few weeks that it will be beaten, because these cars are massively fast. Yeah. But anyway, it was fun. It was fun, and it just proved to the world in a way and to myself to an extent that if you have the right team, the right car, the right timing, you can win, you know, as long as you are, you, you believe in yourself. And that was the, the, the clear example because people thought I was never going to be able to, to be competitive in Formula One. And then let's fast forward to two six. Yes. You've got the drive after Montoya has gone to America. You've got that podium, as I said earlier. Um, how confident were you of racing in 2007 uh, for the team? No. Mid-2006. I was not confident at all. I mean, because of this man, Lewis Hamilton. Yeah, this little man that was uh, flying. But I tell you why I realized that it was not possible. And, I, why, and why, more importantly, I was not disappointed. Because I was never disappointed that Luis got the drive. Because I, wa- I-, I was disappointed with McLaren at one point that when, Juan, as I was saying, when Juan Pablo left, that I was given the chance at the French Grand Prix and then the German Grand Prix and then, the Hung- you know, but every race was like a passport of, uh, you know, they, they've sent, they stamped the visa and, okay, you can race in the next race, you can race. And then suddenly... Luis was GP2 champion, and then it was like, well, we are not sure for the next race. I, I didn't feel that the team trusted in me enough, really. You know, you have to give, if you go for the reserve driver and you have to give him credit and say, okay, look, the next eight races are yours. You are the reserve driver, you're the test driver, you, you know the car better than anyone. But, you know, I was on the podium as well, but they never did that. They always, okay, next race, next race, until the end of the season. And that, that was, I thought it was bad for myself, but especially, especially for the team, because there were situations where I was under a lot of pressure. If I don't, if I don't finish in front of Kimi the next race, or if I don't do well, uh, Luis will jump into the car. So that was wrong in a way, you know. And uh, that, but I was nothing against Luis. Luis was, you know, just won the championship in GP2, blah blah blah. Then we got to test in September one day with Luis in Silverstone, and that's when my mind changed. Because we were, he had, we had two cars. We were testing there. It was his first ever Formula One experience. He did a run, and he was nowhere. You know, and I remember looking at his data and uh, with Philip Pru, with his uh, my race engineer back then, and and we were looking and, and and Philip told me the boy will need to improve a lot over the years. You know, I mean, you know, it's it's a long it's a long road for for Luis, but he will be good. But we just have to give him time. Blah blah blah. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I did a run, came back, looked at the times, and I, I saw Luis was fastest, you know, on the second run. And I looked in the data and I said, what happened? And well, we put him new tires. So I looked in the data and he was so fast through the, through, through Cops, Beckett's, Maggots, that then I just realized the potential of Luis Hamilton. 
Just looking at the data for a couple of seconds, I realized we had a massive problem. This guy was... We, Pedro de la Rosa. We, we and all the drivers in the oh, grid. <laughs> <laughs> because, Tom, if Pedro de la Rosa has a problem, everyone has. <laughs> but you know, but was, that was the test, was it? Where you it realized? was his first ever Formula One yeah. test, his second run in Silverstone. And I realized this guy is very, very fast. I mean, I've seen a lot of drivers in my life. I, I, you know, I've been with, with very good drivers, I would say, and I feel very honored of that. But when I saw Luis, I thought, wow, this is very special. And then, then when the season was over, I knew that Luis would be in the race car. I knew that Fernando was signed. And I was happy with that because I, I, I said to myself, if I was in, on Ron's feet or Martin Widmar's feet, I would take the same decision. Because Luis is incredibly fast and Fernando, we all know, he's mega. Did you expect it to blow up in 2007 in the way that it did between Alonso and Hamilton? And do you think Fernando underestimated Lewis Hamilton? I think that, uh, well, I was surprised of how it all exploded, unfortunately, because if we look back, that driver pairing is possibly the strongest there's ever been, ever. I mean, I'm, you know. Senna Prost, yes. better than that. Yeah, and it goes back to your original question. I always think that the new generations are stronger. So it's not nothing against Senna or Prost. They are, they are my heroes, you know, I'm forever heroes. But actually, I think that that level of uh, Fernando and Luis was amazing. I mean, I, I remember looking at their data and uh, thinking these guys are from a different planet. And, uh, and still, uh, but I was not expecting for the relationship to, to explode. It was a shame, Tom, because those two guys, you know, they, they would have brought so many championships to McLaren. Now, I know people talk about Hungary 2007, but was just on track talking about two racing drivers, was there a moment where you felt, ah, that's where it went wrong between the two of them? Or do you actually think the respect between them remained for the whole season? They, they always respected each other massively at the track because they knew how good the other was. Although they never said publicly, I, they had a lot of respect for each other. And there was nothing wrong ever done at the racetrack between them. It was always a strong fight, but fair. You know, there was nothing, no pushing or just breaking the front wing or, you know, nothing. There was just a fair two gladiators fighting uh, bravely at the, the racetrack. So I have no, no, no bad memories about that. So, Who was quicker? They were both massive. They, they were different drivers, different, but uh, both were very, both were massively fast, talented. And then I think Luis learned a lot from Fernando over that year. He did a masterclass of how to be consistent at the race and how to, how to take care of the car, not only the tires. And that's when Fernando also started to, to feel that telemetry, the data was working on, uh, on Luis' favor. And then he started not driving like he should on, on, on free practice. And then suddenly in qualifying, he was massively fast. So anyway, there was a lot of, of games playing between these two super gladiators. Do you think Ron Dennis mismanaged the situation between them? I mean, obviously there's Spygate as well. And for people who aren't aware of that, it was, I mean, God, it was... <laughs> Man, it was a terrifying year, actually, when I look back. But just, just to when explain. things went wrong, it was well before the Spygate because people think the Spygate, uh, the, the Spygate was uh, the 
the, the, the top of the of the iceberg. You know, I mean, there had been since Canada, no, since Monaco. I remember uh, Fernando won in Monaco fair and square, and in the last. 20 laps of the race, he was managing the caliper ten temperatures of the car because we had an issue. And most teams had in that era in Monaco at low speed corners where it was difficult to cool down the calipers. He was leading and he was just managing the situation, uh, cooling the calipers. You could see on the data that he was cruising. And when I say cruising, it was incredible how early he was breaking on every breaking point. And, uh, you know, and, and Luis was catching him massively quickly. But, you know, it was like Fernando is just like sandbagging. So I think that the, the, the team, you know, uh, never told Luis that this is how we are going to finish the race. Uh, Luis was trying to win that Monaco Grand Prix. And then after the race is when all went wrong. Because Fernando was told that that race should have been won by Luis. Who told him that? Someone in the team. And okay. then... In management? Yeah. Right. Okay. And... Uh, I, can, I think we know who. <laughs> Do you mean Ron I mean, Bennett? He, he, yeah. was, he, was not, he was not told in that way, but he was kind of... They suggested that, you know, that uh, the boy was quicker than him, basically. And then that pissed uh, Fernando off massively because if you look at the data, if you understand about racing, you know that Fernando could have been two seconds a lap quicker. But Fernando is just was a massive. Well, he is a massively clever driver, astute, I would say, and he knew exactly how to win without, uh, you know, uh, compromising the, the the calipers, the brakes, the engine at any any point. So I, I think that that was the beginning of the end, unfortunately, because he realized that they didn't understand what he was doing, that how cleverly he was driving. And after that, everything was was wrong, you know. And, and Luis was massively quick and driving and improving and getting stronger. And he, Fernando realized that, wow, Houston, we have a problem. This guy is quicker than I expected, you know. And then the whole Spygate thing happened. And for people who don't know what that is, um, you know, McLaren had the book thrown at them after chief designer Mike Coughlin was caught photocopying copies of that year's Ferrari. Um, I mean, how do you reflect on all of that now? That was... Uh, oh my God, it's more than 10 years ago. That was, yeah, but still I wake up some, some nights, you know, with a cold sweat because I still don't understand why we were fined 100 million, honestly. I mean, we, th there was this theory that we had a, like a, we, we were uh, engineering a, a copy department of Ferrari or that we were engineering a way into Ferrari or trying to get information from Ferrari. There was nothing of that. We were a racing team that as with any other competitor, we're trying to find information from them, which everyone does in Formula One. And the, the, the information we had about Ferrari was, uh, was the typical information you share in a coffee machine, just speaking with engineers, you know, and do you know what uh, weight distribution Ferrari has? And, uh, you know, these type of questions that obviously someone in the team had the information because of a friendship at Ferrari. And uh, we shared this information. Uh, did we change anything of our development, of our testing program, of our nothing? Nothing changed. We didn't use that But it was a very graphic illustration, you know, to actually photocopy... Yes, 
Well, that, that I mean, that's very different to having a, a coffee with someone from a rival team, isn't it? Yeah, yes, but uh, people have to understand that that information that was passed, it never, we, I never saw it. No one, it was never in the, in the team. I mean, it was, it was Mike uh, that actually uh, did the photocopy, the, the, the wife's, uh, uh, Mike's wife uh, did the photocopies. Why, do, well, all the copies, why did you think she did it? Because Mike didn't know what to do with the information. He was not taking it seriously. So, I was surprised that, okay, we did something wrong. Yes, of course. I mean, I'm not trying to say we did everything right. But was it 100 million worth? Oh, my God. I mean, I thought we got thrashed by, by that type of, of penalty. And it really, we lost all the points in the, world, in the Constructors' Championship. Eventually, we lost the championship in the drivers as well. So I think we, we paid a big penalty, a big, big price for something that in many teams I've been in Formula One, because I've been in many teams, there's always information flying around from the other teams, other competitive teams. Why? Mostly because you hire engineers from other teams that come to your team. Okay, they don't say, uh, when I was at Ferrari, we used to... No, they say, in other teams, we have done this or the other. Other teams do this or the other. You know? So basically, they treat the information in a more subtle way. But the information is much more deep than what we had at McLaren. And this is what, for me, it was like, it was very badly presented. It was very graphic that we had information from Ferrari, but it was never used at all. And that's for sure, we never, we never gained one hundredth of a second because of it. So, 100 million, Tom, was a bit, I would say, a bit too much. How desperate did things get inside the team? Mm. I remember walking into the motorhome at Spa, 2007 Fernando Alonso greeted he was <laughs> sat in front of the doors of the motorhome with his feet on the table he was sat at shades on and he just looked at everybody walking in and I just thought oh my goodness the, the, the atmosphere was so tense well I so think that, that that information uh, well uh, that situation uh, was like a divorce inside the team the, the relationship was not good before, but that was like the complete divorce. And the fact that the, the, the FIA knew about it uh, raised many questions over who had passed this information to the FIA. And everyone seemed to blame Fernando for something that we don't know, we didn't know, and we have zero evidence that he did it. But the FIA knew it could be from Ferrari, it could be from any any anyone, you know, because there was many people in the team that knew that we were, ah, you know, about the weight distribution of Ferrari or whatever. So it was, it was unfair in the way that Fernando was blamed for something that he, 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 I don't think he did it. So it was, uh, it was, the, it was uh, the divorce point because uh, he was looked at someone that had damaged McLaren at that point. And do you think he still carries the baggage of 2007 with him today? In some capacity, do you I think that's think one so. of the reasons why Toto Wolff never looked at him to drive the Mercedes, for example? I don't think so. I think that uh, I think that we all made many mistakes, and that at the end of the day, Fernando, because he was always uh, he was he's a critical guy, you know. He he says things to the face, and when he doesn't like things, how people are, are working or doing things, and. Uh, I think he got a lot of the blame for actually something that was not 
you know, only, I mean, let's be honest, the guy didn't do anything wrong, you know, it's just like, he was blamed for, for, uh, for the spy scandal, the spy gate, where, where, when he shouldn't have been. And uh, I think that the, uh, during the years, everyone had realized that Fernando was just caught in, in the middle of the fight, like I was as well, you know, and many, many people. But there was other fights going on at the high levels that we were not aware of, actually, at that point. This era that we're talking about was, was a fantastic era of Formula One, wasn't it? And, and as test driver at McLaren, can you just describe um, what it was like and how intense the testing programs were and even describe a typical week? How many test teams did you have running at that time? I mean, we, we had to work very hard. Very, very hard because... Hang on, sorry, sorry, racing driver saying he's working very hard. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. But I say we, eh? we. <laughs> A true racing driver would say I have to work very hard. But uh, we, we were working flat out, you know, from the moment, the Sunday, the, you know, the flag went down, uh, there was the test team already building the tent in Jerez or in Valencia, in Monza, in Barcelona, wherever, in Paul Ricard as well. And we would, we had, all teams had two, two car test team. Uh, myself and Alex Wurz did a lot of the work and every, every day was like a marathon. It was just uh, testing parts. Tire war was also happening between Michelin and Bridgestone. So we were testing, one car was mainly tire testing, the other one was developing, testing uh, new parts. So we were, we were having fun. Massive fun. I mean, it was, and then you have to had to go to the tra to the team and do all the correlation work on the simulator. So it was the era where being a test driver was fantastic. You were learning, you were inventing, you were creating, and and you were you were you were very fit. So that's why I, when I jumped into the car, I was confident that I could do the job. How many kilometers were you doing a year? I mean, we, I, I never counted, but, uh, you know, I, there, were, there were seasons where I was doing over 48 days of testing. 48 days of testing alone. And uh, it was a lot, you know, it's just uh, two days a week. So it was, it, was a, it was fun. It was real fun. It was uh, the, the, the great time of uh, Formula One. Uh, each testing, test session was like a Grand Prix. Now... When you first joined McLaren, there was the MP418A, the car that never raced but was meant to be brilliant in so many ways. Tell us about that car. Well, that car was the, one of the reasons why I, was, uh, I grew at McLaren, actually, and I eventually uh, got Alex Sproul. <laughs> I, I hope Alex is not listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but the, the reason why I managed to survive at McLaren and actually uh, get the, the, the respect of the, all the engineers was because no driver, let's say uh, David Cuthard back then or Kimi or Alex wanted to drive the MP418 because it was dangerous. That is the reality. Every time they drove the car, they had a shunt. Alex was the first guy driving that car and he destroyed the car in turn four at Jerez, a massive shunt. And uh, then uh, Kimi drove it in Barcelona and uh, he lost one of the rear upright uh, coming on the last corner and he, he kissed the pit wall uh, quite heavily. So everyone that jumped into the car had a problem. So eventually they, said, they looked at me and uh, said, Pedro, would you like to drive? And I said, yeah, yes, of course, because 
I, I just thought it's the only way of actually having a chance here, you know. So that's how I ended up. Uh, everyone started respecting me because I had more testing, testing, more test days under my belt. But that car was dangerous, for sure. I took a chance, you know. I had Did to. it break on you? Oh, many times. Right. I mean, uh, and it, when it was not the chassis, uh, it was the, the engine that seized at one point. My last lap on the MP418 was at Jerez, turn eight. Uh, and uh, I was on the gravel because the car, I was flat out at 250 kph and uh, the engine just ceased from nothing. And Antistol didn't even kick in. So I was, uh, that was the last one, but uh, there were many others. I mean, but, but don't think that that is uncommon. I mean, test drivers back then, we had to do a lot of the donkey work. And I've had other chance or near chance that no one ever knew about that I feel very lucky to be here with you today. Oh. From that era, same yes. era. Yes. Wow. Now, listeners, BOTB, or the best of the best, is a name you might already be familiar with. They are the original winner car competition company. They've been operating since 1999, and with 20 years worth of winners, there's been an incredible £31 million worth of cars given away to more than 500 lucky players. And you could be a lucky player too. All it takes is a little skill. Remember those old spot the ball games you used to get in the paper back in the 80s and 90s? Well, it's been updated for the digital age, and that's the game of skill you'll be playing online for your chance to win. Just pick your dream car, lay out your coordinates for the placement of the ball, and a team of expert judges will take care of the rest. It's simple to enter on the BOTB website, and once you're there, you'll find there's a choice of 180 cars, including Porsche, Mercedes, Aston Martin, BMW, Range Rover, Volkswagen, McLaren, Tesla, and many more. So you can let your wildest dreams dictate as you select the dream car at the top of your fantasy list. Tickets to enter the competition range from 85 pence up to £7, depending on the value of the car. For example, a ticket to win a Mini Cooper S is £1, whereas a ticket to win a Porsche 911 Carrera is £3.95. There's a winner every week guaranteed. Insurance for the first year is included. Plus, you can also win 20 grand in cash to go alongside your dream car. Competitions run from Midnight Sunday to Midnight Sunday, 52 weeks a year. And bear in mind that you have to be over 16 to enter, but the competition is worldwide and easily entered online from wherever you are. You could be next week's dream car winner. Enter now at botb.com forward slash grid. That's botb.com slash grid for your chance to win the car of your dreams. Right, let's get back to Pedro. Now look, on the current grid, I want to talk about some more racing drivers. Um, you raced against Vettel, Hamilton, Grosjean and Raikkonen. You also raced against Christian Horner in Formula 3. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Was he quick? He was quick, yes. Really? He was, uh, I must say, I mean, he, he was quick in Formula Renault. He was quick in Did Formula Renault. Did you race him in Renault as well? He was with Manor Motorsport. Yeah, John Booth. Yeah, yeah John Booth. Yeah, very, he had a very good car, I would say. And then in Formula 3, he was never that quick. I mean, not, not as quick as he had been in Formula, Formula Renault. In Formula Renault, he actually, I think he won one race in Pembrey. He was always a contender. And uh, I, I got on with, uh, with Christian very well when we were racing and with his family as well. They were really well-educated and they, they were always supporting him. We, we had a great time back then. It was a different era as well. But, uh, but um, you've never worked with Vettel, have you? 
never, no. What are your observations of him? Do you think he's in a slightly delicate place at the minute? Do you think he'll continue beyond 2020 just as an observer from the outside? Well, I think that he's under pressure, you know, and uh, when you're a world champion and four times world champion even, I mean, you will always be under pressure from the youngsters. He has a super driver next to him and uh, he, he just have to de deal with it, you know. Uh, Do you think it's his choice whether no. he continues at Ferrari? Ah, yeah, I think, I think it will be his choice, yeah. So if he wants to stay... They will have. I, I think it's simple. I mean, he, if he if he's beaten, he will not want to continue. I mean, it's very simple. The guy has won four world championships. He's uh, he's he's nothing to prove, and he's only going to feel emotionally, psychologically. You feel very small when your teammate is faster than you. It doesn't matter if you are four times world champion or whoever you are. It's just just it's going to sleep every night knowing that you have to wake up with that animal next in your garage that is going to, to destroy your lap time. It is very difficult to do that, you know, and uh, there's a point in your life that when you, be, you, you, you encounter a Lewis Hamilton or, or a Fernando Alonso, or might be a Leclerc, you know, he has to still prove it, or a Verstappen, uh, you, you really don't want to continue. I mean, it's not that, uh, you know, he's, he, if he wants, he will continue. But actually, if, if Leclerc beats him, he will be the first one to raise his hand and back, go back home or uh, do another thing or maybe jump to a different team. I don't know. What about Kimi Raikkonen? Um, how uh, you were teammates with him, you worked at McLaren with him a lot. How does he as a world champion differ to the Lewis's, the Fernando Alonso's? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, Luis, Fernando... I, I would say they are on a different level to all these drivers. Huh? I mean, different level to Kimi, to Kimi, to Seb. To I, I really, I, I really respect them. I think they're very good. But when, when I'm talking about Luis and Fernando, I, I, I know them very well. I've, I've shared the car with them. I know exactly what they are capable of. So, and with Kimi as well. So I know how good everyone is. And uh, so, uh, please trust me when I say. Uh, Luis and Fernando are are really special drivers. You don't encounter talent of this magnitude uh, every year in Formula One. Huh? I mean, it's something that happens every five, ten years. So I think that I have a huge respect for all the Formula One drivers. They're all very good. But when you talk about a Fernando, a Luis, a Max as well, careful, huh? careful, because this is high voltage. <laughs> <laughs> But also you think a Kimi Raikkonen circa 2005, 2006 wasn't at that level even then? Okay, there are contributors, contributing factors to why he was excel, excelling or just peaking back then. It was mainly, Kimi is super fast. I mean, he, of course he's fast, he's world champion for, for, for God's sake. But he needs the car to drive in a certain manner. If the car doesn't have a very sharp front end, you, he won't. He won't. He won't adapt to it. That's the difference between he, Luis Hamilton and uh, Fernando. Fernando, you you throw at him any car, understeering peak, uh, oversteering peak, whatever, and he will be fast, extremely fast, because they know exactly. And, and you ask them, what do you do? And they don't know what they do. They actually adapt. It's fantastic. I've seen it in Formula One. I've seen it in karting. I've seen it in many formulas. But with Kimi, the car has to suit him. He will not adapt. And back in 2005 and six, there was the Michelin tires. 
the Michelin tires had a very unique way of driving. They had a very strong front end. The construction of the front end was extremely different. And it was, Montoya was struggling. I was struggling. We actually could not adapt to this sharp front end in the way Kimi did. And that's why he was, he was super fast. But then he went to Ferrari. Remember, he moved and he moved to Bridgestone. And then Felipe Massa was beating him in qualifying easily. So all I'm saying is that, you know, if the conditions were correct, Kimi would be as quick as Luis and, and Fernando, yes. But out of 20 races, when is the car always behaving the same and is in perfect uh, setup condition? Not many, you know. That's why I rate Luis and Fernando. Fascinating. Really, really interesting. Now, you mentioned Ferrari. You spent two years at, at the red team. Happy memories? How, how do you reflect on those two years? Did it, and how similar is that team to McLaren? Yes. Look, I, I look back and I understand that at McLaren, it didn't go well. First, that I left the team to go to HRT in 2012. Because I, st I still remember the day that I told Ron I was leaving to HRT. <laughs> because I had a contract. I was happy at McLaren. They had, I, I'm so grateful of McLaren. I mean, it's my team. It's in my heart. And I will always, always be a McLaren fan. I was a Senna fan when he was at McLaren. I, you know, I, and I, it's a dream come true to have been working with these great people and team. Fantastic. But there's a point in your life that you want to go racing. And this is something that Ron never understood. So I remember can we, can the day... We, can we do a role play? Okay. I'm you and yes. you're Ron. Okay. Yes. So I've just come into here. <laughs> just come into your office and I, Pedro, say... Ron, okay, um, it's China. It's one of the last Grand Prix of the season. And you are telling yeah. Ron, ma, me, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you're leaving to HRT. So it's very important to say HRT. Okay, Ron, um, have you got five minutes? I just, um, I've, I've thought about this long and hard and I want to race for HRT next season. Okay. He would, he would then suddenly he stops looking at my eyes and he says... HRC? I said, no, no, no. That's Honda Racing Corporation. No, uh, HRT. H whatever the name is. You must be fucking nuts. <laughs> and he left. Is that what he <laughs> said? Yes. So, so Was that the end of the conversation? That was the end of the conversation. There was not much. But Ron, you must understand, he, he just banged the door and left. And why did you do that? Why I? Because you hey, wanted to race. Are you with Ron? Or? <laughs> with, no, no, I can pronounce HRT. Because I, I am a racing driver. I was a racing driver and I will die being a racing driver. So, it does, you know, it was a, a really in, interesting project. It was a Spanish Formula One project. Uh, very modest. The, I was going to lose money, you know, clearly. I was possibly going to lose my career. Sorry, lose at McLaren. money. I did. But lose money as in get paid less or yes. did you invest in the team and lose no i didn't invest okay. but i invest my 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 future basically yeah. you know and uh, my career I, I i i signed for less going there yes uh, i signed for less years yes uh, did i ever come back to mclaren no so basically that was <laughs> a gamble that it didn't work out but 
looking back, I would have done the same because I got to go back racing. Uh, I wanted Spain to have a Formula One team. It was the moment where Formula One was speaking in Spain. Fernando was winning or was fighting for championships. There was interest. There were sponsors. The, 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 the fans were great in Spain or they were very interested. So I, I said to myself, it's the logical step is to build something in Spain now. The plan with HRT was that I drove the car for two years and then I would become the team principal. So there was a plan behind. behind. But it, it was just after one year, there was no more money and they, they, they pulled the plug, as simple as that. So I was left with no team. Uh, obviously, I, I never called Ron after that. <laughs> you know, I never called Ron. I know what he would have said. Yeah, I told you, I told you, uh, which he was right. But I had to fight for my dreams, you know, and, and, and actually... If, I, if you look at what happened then, there's many mechanics, engineers, uh, people that are working in Formula One now, today, Spanish people that come from HRT. So we did give them a, a, a job and an opportunity in their lives. So I feel very honored. It didn't work out for me and for many other people, but actually I lost my, I, I lost my, my future role at McLaren, yes. But it did open up an opportunity at Ferrari, if we're looking at the positives. Yes, which was surprising, because when I finished at, at HRT, I thought, well, that's it, you know, now let's see what I can do. And then suddenly I got the, the call from Stefano Dominicali, a fantastic guy, and I, I, I got a, a text message, and Stefano, I said, Stefano? Oh, it, can, it can be. And then I phoned him, and he was, uh, he wanted to have a chat with me, so I went to to Maranello, we discussed Formula One. He, they were interested in my services as a test driver. And obviously I was more than interested in, in joining Ferrari, but which driver isn't, you know? Was my heart at Ferrari? No. Am I a McLaren fan, a McLaren person? Yes, but it's like when you play for Barcelona, you know, in, in a football team or Manchester United, there's a point that if, if Real Madrid come along and it's the end of your career and you've never experienced playing for Real Madrid, you would go for it. So I, I already <laughs> had blown my chances at McLaren, let's be honest. So it was a fantastic experience. I would, I, I'm very, very proud of having ended up my career at, at Ferrari. How different is that place? Oh, it was night and day. It was very different. Uh, it was... It, it was very different and it was, there was a hierarchy at, at Ferrari. And when I joined, I didn't feel loved at all. Because you were a, seen as a McLaren yeah, man. Yeah. I suppose. yeah. And, and also the problem is that I, I went into Ferrari and I remember, and I remember uh, going to my room after signing the contract. I had never spoken about it with uh, Fernando. Fernando was racing there. That was going to be my next question, actually. Yes. Yeah. And then I jumped in. I, I was going to bed that night, proud. I had signed my contract, two-year deal with Ferrari for test, dri test driving. Wow, it was Ferrari, you know, for God's sake. I mean, it was a, a top team, you know. It just, And I remember getting a message from an unknown number saying, you will realize this is the best team and it was Fernando and that was my first communication with him because I wanted to if Ferrari was interested in my services I wanted Ferrari to be interested in my services not Fernando or a friend or you know I just I am very professional I don't want to go into a team because I am the friend of you know but actually Fernando 
after the McLaren that we worked together, after we had a fight with the Spygate, after everything, because it was, as I told you, a very tense moment, we had lost contact, and then suddenly he had recommended my services. For me, that was very important because it wasn't, people thought, ah, he's a friend. I'm not a friend of Fernando. Back then, I was not a friend. We were under uh, the Ice Age, you know? <laughs> so I went in there, and, uh, but I was seen as a friend of Fernando. And this was why I didn't feel loved, you know, because there were other drivers wanting that role that they had been working very hard to get it. And then suddenly I arrived from McLaren, you know, seen like McLaren, McLaren competitor uh, joining. It must have been fascinating to see the competitor, if you like. All those years at McLaren, you'd, Ferrari had been the main opposition and to suddenly see them from the inside, what struck you about them? And you thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe we won those races. Or, or were you thinking, no, no, McLaren actually have the better resources. Was there a, can we compare and contrast? Yes, when, when I joined Ferrari, I was a bit shocked about the lack of resources that it had compared to McLaren. Um, in, in what what areas? Well, the simulator was very weak. The The team itself wasn't, it was not well structured in the sense that you had the wind tunnel far away, you had the design office in a different building. It was all scattered around in, uh, in Maranello. And that, to my eyes, was, uh, was wrong and just was not the right environment to produce winning cars. Uh, I came from McLaren, everyone, you knew exactly with who, who was dealing with, uh, who was the, the, the director of each department. So you knew exactly who to talk with, who, had, who was the decision making, makers, and how you had to deal with uh, a problem. Or uh, in Ferrari, I didn't really know who was dealing with what. But I think that this structure of team completely scattered around in a town is not the right way, or was not the right way. Now they have a, a new office and centralized everything. Is, it looks much more uh, logical. But I, I just didn't see the resources that I saw at McLaren back then. And how emotional was it for you when you, I think it was Jerez, wasn't it, when you first tested the car? Was it, it Jerez? Yes, it was Jerez, actually. How emotional was that? It was a fantastic to drive the Ferrari. I was very nervous, I must say, and it was a... Hang on, nervous after 107 Grand Prix and years of test driving and however many thousand kilometers, you were still nervous. I've always been nervous. Not nervous, excited, maybe is the right translation to Spanish. Excited, but when you feel the stomach is, is different, no? I mean, there's something going on. But, but in the same way, when I drove the, the, the HRT the first day, you know, I, I was not any more nervous because it was Ferrari. This must be clear. It's just that I always, whenever I drove a Formula One car, I, I just felt something special. And when I drove the Ferrari as well, because it was, it was a beautiful car. I mean, when you jump into a red Ferrari, a Formula One car, it was special. Special and it was a very difficult debut because the car caught fire on the second lap, you know. So <laughs> it was... Uh, incredible what happened now look, a couple of other questions about your career um you were Jos Verstappen's teammate at Arrows do you see a lot of Jos in Max yes yes I mean I must say that uh, I see a lot of his uh, he, the, Jos was extremely aggressive in in, in, in racing 
maybe you know and i think that uh, max has that aggression he has inherited that aggression he's even quicker than his father but let's not underestimate josh how fast he was because people tend to think that ah is the father you know the father was also a formula 1 driver he was very quick remember josh i mean josh was just the boss and just the boss yes. yeah absolutely yeah yeah <laughs> he was flying in formula 3 he won the masters in sandboard back then with uh, van amersdorf i think it was it was a fantastic driver. He was a fantastic driver, and 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 Max is just one step or two steps better than him. Did you but meet with the same aggression? Did you meet Max back then when he was yes. one or whatever? I, I remember one one time when uh, I I was having dinner. I mean, George was my teammate. We always got on very well, no matter what people said. I always rated Josh as a true, a very genuine guy. We, we always had a very open conversation with him. I love uh, Dutch people because they are very honest. You, sometimes you don't like what they say, but they no, normally are quite, quite harsh how they say things, but they are really in, in a competitive environment. That's what you need. And Josh was like that. And when we were having dinner one night uh, in Nürburgring, uh, you know, Saturday night with my wife, and then suddenly this little kid, you know, blonde little kid comes there, starts playing with me. And, and I, I turned around. And I didn't know who, who he was. And then I realized it was Josh, uh, Josh kid. And uh, I, then I, Josh said to him, Max, uh, let Pedro alone. Don't, don't bother him, you know. And then uh, little Max left the, the, the table. And I thought at that point, I thought, you know, when you're racing, I thought, wow, Josh has a kid. He's dead. <laughs> He's lost those yes, three tenths. Yes. You know, it's my first. I, I, I saw Max. I saw Josh. And how bad is this? He has a kid. You know, you cannot be a world champion with kids. And then a few years later, I was having kids. So it, did it slow you down? Uh, no, never. I, don't, I didn't feel like that, you know, at least. I never. I think that there's some things that contributed for me being faster than actually the, the kids or, you know, the family, having a family. It's so, the fact of having huge accidents and escaping or away of them. Then you realize that you are, yeah, and Formula One is very safe, more than the kids situation and stuff. But anyway, I was just, it was funny. No, yes. no it's funny. Now you got on well with Jos. Um, what about Eddie Irvine, your teammate at Jaguar? Eddie, Eddie is a different subject. <laughs> he was a... Uh, he, he was uh, always trying to get me, you know, or trying to criticizing me in, inside the team or he, he was not a team player. He was a great driver, very fast, but he was not a team player. And, uh, you know, I give you an example. Brazil, OK, 2001, we I was having a very good weekend I, in, in FP3. I was flying. I was in the top 10 and he was nowhere. So then. I go. I always go. I do. I take a nap, 20 minutes nap before jumping into quali. Uh, so I'm just sleeping. Uh, wake up, and I go to my garage. Just 10 minutes to go in qualifying. Just make sure that mechanics uh, car is all right. And I, I just see my car completely in pieces. Eddie's car completely in pieces. And I, and I, and I ask Nicky, Nicky Lauda. You know, he was the team principal. I said, Nicky, what's going on, man? And he says, Well, we. We have decided. We have decided to change engines. You know, in Nicky's way. I said, "What? What do you mean, change engines?" He said, "Yes, uh, Eddie said your your engine was better than his, so we are putting your 
uh, Eddie's en uh, engine in your car and we're swapping engines basically because we need to know if he's right or not. And I, hey, it's qualifying, it's Brazil, it's a Grand Prix, it's not testing, you know, what, what are you playing here? Anyway, uh, I was pissed off, but, and then, what, what were we trying? What were we fighting against us? I mean, we, we were nowhere anyway. We had to win races with the Jaguar and we were not even close. So anyway, I jumped into qualifying, pissed off like hell, and I out-qualified Eddie again with his engine. It was not the engine. Eddie was having a bad weekend, full stop. I don't know if the car was wrong or whatever. I don't, I don't care. I mean, I was quicker than him in that event. So that's how, what were we playing, you know? Was he number one driver and therefore yeah. he could make yes, those calls. No, he was the number one. I mean, but in a, yes, but what? I mean, what, what? I mean, we were not fighting for the world championship, you know? I mean, we were fighting to survive at that point because we were under pressure to deliver good results to the Ford Motor Company. So anyway, that, that's, that's that type of, of thing that can kill a relationship in a team. And actually that killed my relationship with Eddie my respect will always remain, but I, we, we, were, we were doing stupid things with, between us. And I also was then treating him badly in, in a sense at a, in qualifying, for example, you know, if he was coming on a flying lap, I moved out of the way, but just giving him the right space without giving him one inch more than he should. And what Nicky always told me, he said, you are doing bad. He said, you have to treat your, your, your teammate better than any other. And I said, Nicky, I'm treating him exactly the same as any other. He said, that's wrong. And he, Nicky was right. But then I said, yeah, but you remember Brazil? You remember, the, you remember so many other times that I have been treated very badly by, by him? So the relationship was not great either. Anyway. What, what about the relationship with Nicky then? You well, with Nicky, Nicky, I mean, I, I, I must say I, I just... Uh, I had a fantastic relationship with Nicky, very straightforward guy, but then he fired me. You still had a, a year to go on your contract? Yes, I had one year and, uh, uh, and Nicky, Nicky fired me, like simple as that, you know, he, and, and I, I didn't like the fact that I don't mind getting fired. This is Formula One, we know how it works, but it was actually the fact that he never told me and I, I was his friend in a way. I re had huge respect. Ex you know, when one of, you work with one of your heroes and he's a straightforward and he's always saying, I have this straightforward approach. Then he, he, he told my, my manager that I was fired. He didn't say, say it directly to me. And I said, Nikki, I called you a few days ago to ask you. You said there was no problem with my contract. Now there is. So I, I felt very... I, I, I let down in a way. So I wanted to kill Nicky, you know, <laughs> that's simple. And uh, he, so a good relationship turned into a disaster for, for a couple of years. But then the relationship again grew strong because one, one time he, he said to me, Pedro, I fired you, but I made a mistake. I shouldn't have uh, fired you and uh, I apologize. And he said that in a, in a dining table in front of Norbert Hogg, of uh, Ron Dennis. And so for me, that was, in a way, was, I didn't need to be said on a, on a dining table. If he had told me on the, over the phone, that would have been nice. But I thought, wow, but he, he's a man of, uh, of uh, he has a strong personality to actually admit mistakes. And after that, our relationship got on fantastically well again to an extent that, 
well, I mean, uh, I was I, I was so sad when he he passed away, and I have I, I remain being an extremely good friend. I love his 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 uh, Matthias and Lucas, Marlene. No, I mean I still have a very good relationship. They live in in Spain, so I I get to see them quite often. Do you, do you think Nicky was the one calling the shots, or do you think it was people over in Detroit at the Ford Motor Company? I, I never asked him, uh, but uh, I have to say, knowing Nicky, that he he wanted to steer the the ship. Eh? I mean, he was not a kind of guy that was told what to do. I think that it was Nicky that actually did what he thought it was correct, and uh, that was firing me. And uh, that's life. And are you surprised that that team morphed so successfully into Red Bull Racing? Because yes. it didn't work. Let's face it, Jaguar didn't work, did it? And what needed to change? In well, order to that's a good question because people, yeah, I always remind people that Red Bull Racing is now what Paul Stewart Racing was and then uh, Jaguar Racing was. And the reason why it has, it has been so successful in the past decade, it's because basically the amount of investment that has gone in is incredible. But when I was at Jaguar Racing, there was no wind tunnel. They were using the sweet, swift wind tunnel in the States. I mean, we had no... Simulator, we have no resources whatsoever compared to what nowadays Red Bull is or any competitive team. Even Minardi back then had a wind tunnel. So, so yeah, you asked me I, what we did wrong. Many things. First thing is to paint the cars uh, green when we were uh, th there was no tools in the factory to make the car go faster. This is the biggest mistake that the team did, and uh, and that was simple. You know, we 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 were going too fast. Uh, but too slow at the track. We, we just, you just need to invest in Formula One. It, there's no magic. Well, that was a sad time, but I just want to end. Oh, I could talk to you all day. I could literally talk to you all day. I'm loving it. But I just love to end this podcast by saying, what was the best car you ever drove? When was the happiest time for you in, what was it, 16 years of Formula One? Okay, that's, the, the fastest car was the MP420. And that was an Adrian Newey design from 2005. It was the last V10 engine of that era. Beautiful engine, 930 horsepower, beautiful sound. It was like a, a, a bull, you know? I mean, it was like unbelievable to, to drive that, that amount of grip and power. It was so physic, physical, but actually it was amazing the grip level that car had. It was amazing looking at you know, jumping into the car, doing a few laps in Jerez with 50, 60 kilos of fuel, looking P Pedro P1. You know, it was like so easy to be fastest. It was so easy. It was so embarrassingly fast that you looked at the competitors and you think, what are they doing, man? Well, why didn't you win the world championship that year? It was unreliable. It was unreliable. That is the, the only reason why we lost it. Uh, it's simple as that, you know, but it was the fastest ever car I've ever driven. And it, it was that time where you had, you know, we were preparing already for the V8 era, which was in 2006. And we had a, an, an engine mode in testing where it was V10 or V8. So you could actually work on the car setup for the, the year after. And I remember that we did the morning like in V10 mode. And, and then at lunchtime, I was dead. I was physically dead. And then we went to V8 mode and it was like, okay, now we go to taxi mode. It's so easy <laughs> <laughs> because 
You know, so just it was the, that much slower. It was the difference in in you know between corner to corner. Those extra tenths were just those extra tenths that killed you. You know, of arriving to the next corner without having had a time for a, an extra breath. It was very demanding. But I remember just like oh, in the afternoon I have nothing. You know, I only have V8 running. So that <laughs> compared to the V10, that car is beautiful. And actually, last night. I took a picture of the MP420 and I took it to a shop to to get it in framed, uh, framed because that uh, was the car. That was the car. It was the car with the horns. Yeah, I you remember. remember? Yes, I remember. Yeah. Montoya and Raikkonen raced it. Yes, lucky them. <laughs> Pedro, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to catch up. Thank you. I, it was, it's been great, and I hope I haven't said too many, too many unpolitical. Answers, uh, you know. But anyway, it's always fantastic to speak with Tom, with you, because you are so passionate about Formula One. You have so much knowledge about what's going on that it's uh, it's it's really a luxury for me to be here. I'm getting embarrassed now. Thanks, Pedro. Cheers. What's there not to like about Senor De La Rosa? He's such an interesting guy, and at various points in that conversation, he had me hanging off his every word. Those insights about Hamilton, Alonso, and Raikkonen in particular were exceptional. Pedro, thanks for your time. As ever, it was great to see you. Well, that's it for this week. I really hope you enjoyed the show, and if you haven't yet subscribed to Beyond the Grid, we're on Apple, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast apps. And subscribing is the best way to ensure you never miss us. We'll be back next week with another huge guest from the world of Formula One. In fact, there have been few bigger characters in the history of Formula One than next week's guest. In the meantime, if you want to drop me a message about the show, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. We really do love your comments and we read them all. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, stay safe and keep it flat out.